right, we are back for another episode of the Freewheeling Podcast. I'm Abby Mickey, and I'm here with Lauren Rowney. Lauren, how's it going? Good, Abby. Today is the final episode of, well, I guess, discussing women's racing for 2020, in a sense. Yeah, we might do like a recap episode at some point and give away awards, um, because because that's always fun. I really wanted to do that, and I was actually going to bring up some things today, but I'll, I'll wait until a bit later. Yeah, we can do a full awards episode because it would be it would be super fun. Maybe we can pull in um, Kaylee for that one uh, from the regular podcast. Just like maybe some of the fans can um, weigh in on their opinions as well of and such your topics that you want awarded and also if we want beforehand we can release it we'll get into it we'll tweet about it so keep a po- keep an eye on our twitters and we will keep everybody posted on what our award season episode is going to be and also joining us today for a little bit of a different perspective we have iris slavendel iris how's it going hey all good yes thanks for having me I was I was getting worried. It took so long to invite me for the podcast again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a while since you've been on the podcast. I mean, you've been pretty busy. What have you been up to? Uh, so much. So I I won't bore you with that. But uh, no, it was a it was a really busy year actually. But um, yeah, mostly mostly interesting stuff. So I I shouldn't complain. First, before we get into the big reason that we have Iris on today we were going to talk a little bit about the Madrid challenge because it was the final women's world tour race of the year and I mean it was pretty exciting the final day today came down to well it didn't come down to bonus seconds but it was pretty close to coming down to bonus seconds which actually made it pretty pretty interesting to watch I had to watch it with a calculator but um (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Lauren, Lauren, what did you think of the of the Madrid Challenge overall? Um, well, like, yeah, suddenly today we were able to watch the stage, so I really enjoyed it. It was here in Belgium on the sports side, and I was sitting down with my boyfriend, and he's really gotten more into the women's racing, and he's like, that team, the pink team. And I was like, which pink team? There's two jerseys in pink. He's like, the one with the, the fluoro yellow bikes. And I was like, oh, Valcar. Yep, they have a good sprint. And he's like, yeah, I've been watching them. They stay together the whole time. They're the only team that stay together. Um, so, of course, like, yeah, just getting straight into it. Elisa won the stage today um, in a brilliant lead out by her team. And they just rode really well together. I was impressed by how organized that team actually is. Um, but obviously in the first stage, we couldn't see that sprint finish. Uh, it seemed like there was a lot of chaos and some of the sprinters or potential sprinters got a bit caught out in that finale. Um, Trek Segafredo didn't have anyone up there. And then, um, of course, Lorena Weebs took her second win for the season in her new team jersey. Um, so that was really exciting. Again, we couldn't watch the first stage, but... The time trial was following pretty closely, and um, I was most impressed, I have to say, and we talk about it often, Elisa Longo-Borghini's time trial was was really good. I mean, it's no surprise she's been in form the whole season, and she just won the TT jersey for Italy. Um, but overall, like, given the fact that a week out when we were, we were chatting, we had no information about the race. Um, I don't think the website was even really developed 
And so I didn't have high expectations for it. It was strange considering it has world tour status, um, but that's a whole other topic that I'm sure Iris can weigh in on. But overall, just following on Twitter and watching today, I was um, I really enjoyed it. I was mostly impressed by Elisa Longobogini's time trial today. I think she was uh, oh, yeah. a breakaway by herself for 40. Um, she she took three bony seconds, so six or seven laps. With I think she did around 43, 44 k's an hour average. Yeah. Uh, and maybe the peloton was not like complete like full gas chasing, but uh, that was that was a really really strong performance. And uh, yeah, at one point she was like definitely threatening uh, the leading GC position of uh, Brennauer. So yeah, that, that really made it interesting and. And also the um, yeah the especially the beginning of the race the the sprint between Brennauer and uh, Wiebes. When I was watching the intermediate sprints, it was really interesting because it looked like Lorena Wiebes she went for a lot of those intermediate sprints in the beginning, and then she just kind of stopped for the last couple of sprints. She didn't go for them at all, which made sense because in the last sprint that she tried to take part in, she wasn't she wasn't really close to taking. Um, any point, any seconds from Brennauer or from um, Con- Confit- Confitieri. Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> Brennauer's <laughs> teammate who took the third set of bonus seconds or the third one bonus second. So it looked like Webus was getting pretty tired in the end and then sat sat in for the for the finish to go for the finishing sprint. But, I mean, I agree, Lauren. Valkar was really, really impressive today. And... Um, Elisa Balsamo's uh, finishing salute was like so awesome. She was so excited. (laughs) Overall, I mean, the first day they like the race got taken off course at one point and with no live coverage, it kind of returns back to the age old discussion that we had during the Giro Rosa. And it feels like, you know, beating a dead horse, but I'm I'm sick of having that conversation. So I I don't even really want to get into it because it's kind of like, Ugh, at this point but from a from the last world tour race of the year you're right the week before I was like this race is getting canceled I know nothing about it I can't write a preview there's no courses released even which I don't know for sure maybe Iris you know if it was because they weren't sure if they could have the race in Madrid because I know there was a bunch of rumors about the men's race being moved away from Madrid I it's interesting that in the end if, if some of the riders didn't think that the race was going to happen, so they maybe had like a mini off season in between Depena and, <laughs> and this. And Elisa Longo-Borghini obviously had Italian national championship, so she couldn't take any time off. Um, but she won like amazingly. And her time trial was uh, incredible. She, I mean, she beat Ellen Van Dyke, who's like one of the best time trialists of all time. So, damn. Yeah, that was that was a super good time trial. Yeah, I definitely think it's it's been a little bit messy um, uh, going into this race and also the race. But uh, yeah, it's a super unfortunate. It's not uh, it wasn't live uh, streamed or on TV. At the same time, I think you know also um, yeah, it's also still good. Like I would say. Yeah, also props a little bit to the organization that they that they pushed through and they organized it. And and I think what I understand from the riders, they're mostly nervous about like traveling to the races from the races um, more than the safety around the races or at the race. 
and and the whole Vuelta seemed to be like really well organized on the perspective of uh, like the co- the COVID protocols. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I also think like especially we have always this this conversation about La Corse and still being a one day race. Well, Madrid Challenge at least they build it from a one day race to a three day race in only a few years. So. Um, I think there's also definitely, uh, um, yeah, a motivated organization. So, yeah, I think maybe add some positives as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're right. They did go in the beginning, the first couple years, it was just the one day in the city center of Madrid. And then they had a time team time trial in 2018, 2019, an individual time trial. That was also actually 2019 won by Lisa Brenauer, the overall Um and then, yeah, this year, three stages. So there is growth and there is positive vibes to this race. I think th- the question then becomes, yes, they've they've grown and yes, they're, they are working hard to kind of make this event for the women, but we can't quite give them a pass for having no live coverage because it's part of the rules of the UCI for them as a world to erase. So it kind of becomes a little bit tricky at that point because like Lauren and I, especially we're just really, really hard on the Giro Rosa for not having any live coverage. So it's hard to kind of deviate from that now and give a race a pass just because they, they've been growing. But, but I, I agree with you. It, it is nice to see that the race has been adding days slowly. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, I agree with you as well. I mean, there's 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 pros and cons to find everywhere, you know, always. Well, overall, like speaking of COVID, the reason that we wanted to chat with you today is because of the women's uh, the Cyclist Alliance, the union that you helped found, does an annual rider survey that kind of gets the opinion of the riders, what's going well, what what needs changing, um, the salaries of the riders, all of this stuff. And overall, obviously, uh, because of the way that the world is right now, one of the new things in the survey was COVID. So how how did the riders respond to COVID this year and kind of to the the overarching COVID situation while they had to keep racing? Um, well, we, we actually did, a, did a, a separate survey just focused on uh, COVID. Um, <clears throat> In the survey you're talking about now, we just asked for the like the salary impact or the financial impact COVID had on uh, the rider salary, and you see that 29% of the riders say like, well, I had to reduce or totally lost my salary due to COVID. Um, the other uh, survey we asked more specifically about the impact it had on. Uh, uh, the racing, their 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 safety, uh, their uh, health situation, uh, what worried them most, etc. And I think that was also a super interesting uh, interesting survey. And and the takeaways from that are really that um, a lot of the riders felt that the COVID protocols were not uh, correctly followed at some races by the race organizers, but also by other riders or uh, mm. spectators um, or, or, you know, staff members around. So I would say like the whole um, scenery around the races. 
And yeah, like I said in the intro, like the main concern is uh, the risk during during travel and uh, accommodation. Um, so the whole bubble thing is like just super hard to maintain. It's quite it's easier when you're at a race or at a state race, especially. But now the last few months we've had the classics, tra- a riders travel home in between. So there's a lot more movement going on, and and uh, yeah, you also have to remember that uh, for a lot of <clears throat> riders, especially in the continental teams, they work with staff members that also have like like uh, a, a day job during the week, and even there are a lot of riders that have a part-time job, or they're still going to school or studying, or they go home to their family, live with their family. So it's just really, really difficult to be in some kind of bubble. Um, and then there's also what we've heard from the riders in the survey, but we also had a lot of riders contacting us with questions about testing. So that's a super stressful thing for riders that uh, a lot of the riders have to arrange their own testing. Uh, I think it was uh, 25%. And of that 25 10%, 10% uh, or, or in total, 10% had to pay for their own testing. So you can imagine how stressful that is, that if you go to a race and before you have to figure out how to test, where to test, if you do it on the right timing, that you have the, the results back in, uh, in time to race. So that's, yeah, I think, you know, there, there, you could say from a positive side, it's, it's been really good that we've had a season of racing and mostly it went like you said at the intro, it went quite well. We didn't see too many cases of COVID. On the other hand, it's been yeah, it's been a really stressful and uh, season for riders, but also for teams. Like taking in mind the financial impact it had on teams to do all the testing, to take all the precautions, to be able to create some kind of bubble. So yeah, I think. I think uh, most of all, it's it's sort of a, a relief for everyone that the season is over right now. And uh, um, yeah, hopefully next year it's going to be a little bit easier with, with all the... Yeah, but I feel like this has just been a, a good test run of what's to come because if we look at the current situation, and Abby and I have discussed this, the classics aren't that far away when we really think about it. Like mm-hmm. by now, most people are in their off-season in a normal season, well into the off season. But um, before we know it, it's going to be February and the few riders, for example, who decided to go home to Australia or America or the South um, will be returning. Um, and it's just going to be, yeah, I'm interested to see how, how things run because in my mind, you know, in Belgium it's quite bad at the moment. Yeah, you're in Holland at the moment, Iris and just around Europe, it's it's not looking great. I can't see things clearing up by March. So I no, feel yeah, no, I think things won't be cleared up. But I think that, um, um, and I think the impact still will will maintain. But um, we've also seen that race organizers are able to uh, adapt to it, and and teams and riders as well. And yeah, it's a bit like you say, it's been some kind of test uh this year and i i'm sure all stakeholders have learned a lot uh from the past months i I think 
maybe, but that's just an assumption. I think on the long term, it's going to just have a huge impact because, yeah, like race organizers, they don't also don't have any income from. Um, yeah, the fans. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, as you know, like here in Belgium, it's a huge part of the culture is, is cycling. Yeah. Um, and it's so strange to watch the cycler cross. Um, without any fans but this is just this new normal um and i'm just assuming that yeah we might not see crowds again and i think this was when cycling tips did that beautiful article of all the pictures of flanders um without crowds that maybe that will be the new normal for 2021 but um for me i'm just happy to see the racing going on and the the riders are safe and the staff members and that it can continue and You know, some people have questioned, well, should people be doing, like, should professional athletes even be competing? Like, is it fair? And I think it is because for me, like, at the start, I had that feeling of what what does it matter, you know, if if athletes are competing? What is this really doing for the whole global situation? Is it it helping us? Um, But we need that, and it's entertainment. It's a good source of entertainment. It keeps people... I don't know, it's like something to look forward to in the future and still stay engaged. Um, I'm sick of watching Netflix and crappy TV shows where I'm I'm really invested still in the racing. So for me, mm-hmm. actually watching the sport has become more important during COVID than ever before, which sounds odd, but yeah. I mean, Laura and I agree with you like 100%. The, the cycling has been an amazing escape from everything going on because – yeah, watching the news all the time and and there's all it's already out there that the mental health at the moment is just really on the downward f- spiral for people all over the world and and it's obvious by, you know, all the protests in Spain and everything that nobody wants to go into a second lockdown. Um and like even here in Latvia where over the summer we were seeing maybe 3 cases a day, 7 cases a day. Um, the country just went into a state of emergency and as of Monday, everything's closed, which, um, is super interesting. Cause when I was here over the summer on the trains, if you wore a mask, people freaked out, like people didn't wear masks or anything. And now it's even hitting here, which is, um, I mean, it, it feels like it was like a bubble away from everything and now it's not. So it's just getting worse and worse. And, and I, I agree, Lauren, like, I don't see how this is going to be able to clear up by March and maybe by June. So, like, who knows? Maybe they'll have to remake the schedule again next year and make it compact in the summer again because the summer seemed like it was at least a little bit safer. But the I feel like the more that it's pushed, the more cases we're going to see within the Peloton. And and we I feel a little bit that the women's Peloton got lucky this time around with how little impact we saw of COVID physically. But as far as financially, I mean, a team folded and many riders, you know, didn't receive their full salary. And then, yeah, like, Iris, what you were saying about 10% had to pay for the tests out of pocket. I mean, that's a lot of money for the amount of tests that they had to do over the season. And and um, especially, like, varying from country to country. Like, in, in Spain, it's 120 euros. In France, it's, like, 40 yeah, I think in Belgium it's 70, So, and you don't get that money back. So 
if there's some way for next year them to figure out how to make the testing more available to the riders, I think that that would be a huge help on the riders and also on the teams. But it kind of goes goes into, you know, the conversation that we have about women cycling a lot of the time, which is that there's this huge disparity between what the top riders are making and what the majority of the peloton is making. And that's making the racing so, you know, of course we're going to see Trek Segafredo like completely and and Bulls Dolman's dominant. They're the ones that are getting paid like the most in the peloton, so they're a little bit less impacted by stuff like this. Whereas, you know, the smaller teams that riders receive no salary or below 15,000 euros, they're going to be taking a huge hit with, you know, a 40 euro test every 6 days or 3 days or some the crazy amount of tests that I know like Tom's had to take while he was racing all season. I think it's um, on that note, Abby, not only, yeah, is it hard to try and be a professional athlete and not earn enough money to sort of get by, or maybe you're just getting by and that's fine. But when you're trying to think about your future and build a life, um, because, you know, you're not going to be a professional athlete forever. The mental mental toll of that is so much greater because, you know, in my early 20s when I was just living the life and I was like, I'd realized my dream, I didn't care how much they offered me at the start. I was like, I will take that contract. I was on really good teams and it didn't matter for me because I was living the life of a pro cyclist. And, you know, okay, I was never the top in the world, but I did my fair share of work for the top riders in the world. But as I got older, it just started to really weigh on me. And I was like, fuck, like, I'm getting towards my late 20s, excuse the bad language, and I'm looking at my savings account, I'm thinking how much I'm earning, I'm talking to my friends back home who are just living the normal life, and it just started hitting home a little bit, like, ooh, like, I'm not getting younger, I know still late 20s is not old, but holy shit, like, I haven't put any money yet into my pension fund, Um I'm earning well below what was like um, unemployment in Australia. So if you were just on the dole, not working. And it just started, yeah, affecting me actually. And that's one of the reasons, mental side issues aside, that really just had an effect on me. And I thought, like, is this what I'm worth in a way? This is it. This is all they think of me. And I looked at the men's team and their minimum wage and, I was doing all the hard work they were doing. Um, But, yeah, okay, I don't race the same distances, but I was putting as much on the line as them. And, yeah, that's... Yeah, I I think it's not only looking at the men's team, but it's also like, for example, I was just talking, I did a commentary on on the Madrid uh, this morning, and with my um, co-commentator, we were also discussing the survey. And it's also like realizing if you watch to this peloton that there's riders in this peloton who have a part-time job who earn absolutely no money with cycling. At the same time, they're racing against girls who who, who earn like a, a pretty okay salary of 60, 80, 100,000 euros a year, uh, which is n- no comparison with men cycling or with other sports. But... Yeah, that 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 huge disparity within the peloton, I think, is is a much bigger concern. And and I think what you're describing, uh, Lauren, is 
is also what we hear from riders, what we see in the survey. Like um, they're they're very they're very aware of their uh, future, and and the financial reason is the biggest reason for riders to re- to retire earlier than they would actually would want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and um, so, so yeah, that, that's you know, if, if it, it's all very obviously, but it's still, I think, something good to realize that in general they have a very high level of education. I think 47% uh, are have studied or stu- studying at a um, at a at a high level, like university, for example. Um, but they're still earning like. Uh, yeah, it, it, like there's 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 no comparison with with what they're doing right now. So yeah, that's you know retiring because of financial reasons is is the biggest reason. Um, and and I would say we've seen that from the first year that we're doing this we do, we're doing this survey for four years now, and uh, you see that riders are just very aware of uh, their future career and uh, how temporary it is what they're doing right now and um, um, that it has an impact on their future career as well. And luckily mm. now we see a few more riders that get also a job within cycling. Mm. That's, that's mm. a very small amount. Yeah, I mean, there's only so many jobs within the cycling realm. That's really interesting because I think that's kind of a a huge impact of COVID on the Peloton is that for so long of this season, we were thinking there's not going to be a season. There's going to be no racing. And now we're staring at all of this, these cases rising all over the world. And this question of, will there be a next season is starting to kind of crop up. And, and yeah, it really like puts into reality how temporary it is to be a professional cyclist. Cause I think all three of us can speak to how, when you're in it and you're doing it and and it's a normal season, like pre-COVID times, you get lost in it. And I know for me, I didn't care how much I was making because I love to race my bike and I just wanted to be the best that I could be. But with COVID, it's it's hard to bury yourself in training and racing and get lost in the world that is professional cycling and forget that you're making like $8,000 a year and you can't pay your rent or buy food. Interestingly, like the good news of the survey was that it seems that the UCI's minimum wage that they've put in for World Tour teams is working, um, that the wages for the top riders are growing, and a lot are making even more than than what the minimum wage is for the World Tour, which is great going into next year and the year after as the UCI increases what that minimum wage is going to be for the World Tour teams. Um, but it kind of circles back around to, you know, if they're racing in the same peloton as riders that are making nothing, it's not really fair. And it is why we see the dominance of some riders versus, you know, and why it's so exciting when someone on a smaller team wins a race. Like today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's, I think in general, like the focus has been so much on the women's world tour and uh, and it's something we are definitely with the cyclist alliance very aware of and <clears throat> i mean we have a lot of riders of world tour teams that are a member of the cyclist alliance but uh yeah 
obviously we we support like actual support like legal assistance or whatever it it's mostly comes to the continental riders uh because their situation is just way more insecure and fragile and they have way less support so um yeah there it's just sometimes frustrating that there is not more attention for those continental riders um and those continental teams and yeah. Uh, i yeah i know it's you know it's 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 great to say uh, yeah we've introduced a minimum salary or maternity leave uh, but you know it's only for such a small fraction of the peloton and um, and i think we really have to look more um, in general like how can you improve the conditions of the continental teams and i can say that that's an introduction of a minimum salary but then it is true it is easier to have sort of um financial standards to teams because that's way easier to check than for example does a team have sufficient and well educated staff members or do yeah. they provide training camps or do they provide um uh, medical support you know so that's um uh, uh we 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 worked a lot on that in the Netherlands, for example, there is a minimum salary for continental teams in the Netherlands based on a 12-hour uh, working week. So it's only for 12 hours a week, but at least there is like this standard. Um, and and we had a lot of discussions then about like yeah, but you know, way more important than a minimum salary is to is to uh, be able to uh, develop riders to give exactly. them a working environment etc etc but how do you check that as a federation for example mm. that's really difficult so um yeah it's it's um yeah it's a challenge yeah i mean you get the in terms of development that's just something that like i'm pretty passionate about coming from australia it's it's quite hard unless you're a huge talent, for example, and you manage to get onto Mitchell and Scott, the pathway is quite difficult. But even here in Europe or, or the US, like you've got some of those incredible talents like Megan, who just got signed by someone straight into a world-class team. But for most riders, it takes a few years to develop. And sometimes perhaps they fall out of it because they realize I'm just better off going to university and knuckling down and getting a real job. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know what the answer is there, but I, I feel I, like, yeah. Yeah, I also don't know what the answer is. I think with the with the Cyclist Alliance, we just focus very much on like what we can do. And one thing is the mental program. And we're going to develop that in the coming year also, especially to get like focus more on diversity in the sport, more support for upcoming riders, but also after career support. So that's really something mm. we're working on right now. Uh, and secondly, doing this kind of surveys, I want to say like how important it is because <clears throat> it's not just interesting information for media. We have now a lot more data uh, on uh, salaries in teams. We ask riders also what team they're in, if they're um, uh, in a World Tour team, if they're U23, if they're in a continental team. So if a rider from a team comes to us and say, hey, I'm having... I, I, I have a contract negotiation with this and this team. Do you know what kind of salaries they're they're paying? We can ah. just check the results of the survey and say, well, 
you know, this is more or less a general salary for a rider of your uh, caliber, so to say, or within mm -hmm. this team. So that's a lot of information that they didn't have before. And I think that really um, empowers the situation the riders are in. And yeah, we just really want to develop this over the coming years because, you know, like we always say, knowledge is power. And it is because all the three of us, we know how difficult it is to go into a contract negotiation. Absolutely knowing, have no clue what kind of salary to ask. Yeah. You have no clue what kind of uh, salary your teammate is earning. No, yeah. So, um, so I think this is really, really uh, vital to to improve their situation. And if we can do that, we do the same with, like we've run a team culture culture survey uh, two years ago. Uh, we know a lot of information from riders that we don't make public, but we know just to be able to give the rider information and that, You know, we keep all information uh, confidential, but at least we can say to a rider, well, this team had many problems or, or this team manager uh, caused this kind of problem. So maybe something to keep in, in the back of your mind before signing. Or we can say, like, this is the kind of salary they pay, but uh, it maybe it isn't much. But on the other hand, this is something they provide really well. Mm. Um, you know, there's so much more information that that is super, super useful for a rider. I wish you guys were around before I retired. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the survey was about the amount of riders that come to you for legal advice has increased. And I'm curious for you to explain to the people that are listening why it's so important for riders to ask you for legal legal help when they're no, negotiating their contracts because we can sit here and say for us we couldn't we couldn't negotiate a contract for x and y reasons but people listening maybe don't understand you know why women don't have agents that help them negotiate for them and and what the benefit is of having that knowledge when you go into a contact contract negotiation yeah i think first of all it's it's something else that I wish I knew when I was a writer, but I always thought I'm not take, I'm not having an agent because my salary is so, I mean, I was, I think, moderate at that time for a, a writer, but it's, 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 it's pretty low, so it doesn't make sense to have an agent, not for me and not for the agent. But I've learned uh, the last few years that it's almost always beneficial to have an agent uh, because they're also able to negotiate a better like there's nothing harder than negotiating your own salary um, but the most important is to have that legal advice and we don't as a union we don't uh, negotiate salaries but we check we do sort of a health check on their um, contract so we could say this should be not in your contract this is missing um, Uh, this is correct, this is not correct, because, you know, it's better to prevent problems mm. um, than fixing problems. Like the last few years, we've done a lot of work with, like, mediation, um, writers that wanted to leave a team mid-season mid because there were just agreements were not, uh, people didn't stick, stick to agreements or they were, they were not clear or there were, there were different expectations. Uh, so it's just way better to have everything like um, correct before you sign, um, and that's what we're doing. We're checking the contract. We do we check if it's 
according to the UCI standards or the standards of the National Federation. But we also check uh, if there's not like strange things in it. Like, um, I mean, we still see a lot of contracts with uh, uh, clausulas. I don't know the word in English, but if you if you reasons for uh, the team to break the contract, for uh, example, clauses. Yeah. Um, um yeah for not paying salary um, you know a lot of things so we just make riders aware of that and if they uh, sometimes we yeah we we help them communicate this to a team um for example also a lot of issues with visas uh with um um um, insurances, uh, especially coming with riders racing for uh, US teams, the insurance is always a, a difficult thing. And yeah, it's it's just I think having that all that information clear before you sign it. And have you seen the membership grown quite a lot in the past years? What percentage would you say on now the alliance? Yeah, we we have like 140 members now. Uh, it has grown a little bit. You also always lose some riders because of retirement, for example. Um, but yeah, it's it's the first year. Obviously, we had the biggest bunch, and we see it slow. Like every week, riders sign up. Um, yeah, so it's 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 keep it slowly keeps growing. Yeah, but I think what's really uh, what's really maybe a misunderstanding is that riders think that they should sign up uh, when when they when they have a certain question or when they need help or when they are in, in problem. Um, it's just way better to sign up from the start, you know, because next to legal advice, like last week we had a, a webinar with uh, Claire Rose on like COVID and what happens if you had COVID and you want to return to racing, like there, there is so much more information out there. Um, currently, we're, we're almost, we have almost finished it, but we're working on a, a rider agent platform to connect riders more easily with rider agents, rider agents that are according to our standards. Mm -hmm. uh, because like you say, there are just not so many agents in, uh, in women's cycling. So it, it's really a lot about educating, informing uh, riders. And I think that's always, um, always good to be part of it. Yeah. Also yeah, when you 100%. don't need help right now. Yeah. One of the, one of the most frequent questions that Lauren and I get um, by being hosts of this podcast and, and also covering women's racing is from people wondering what they can do as fans to help grow the sport or what they can do to support to support women cycling. And I'm wondering if you, not to put you on the spot, but if you have any thoughts on what fans can do to support women cycling. Now, I think the first thing is like, watch it whenever you can. So uh, watch it, follow riders, follow teams, like be engaged. Uh, and yeah, like we would really appreciate fans to become a supporter member of the Cyclist Alliance. So we have a membership option for uh, for fans or supporters for 35 euros a year. They become like a supporter. They get a newsletter. They get a cap. Um, and uh, they can even like uh, adopt a rider. So for riders that can't afford membership, they can uh, they can pay the membership for it for them, or they can become a sponsor. 
and all this like we're we're funded by our members, uh, riders and supporters, and a few small uh, sponsor. Um, and and yeah, all this money goes to giving this support to riders. So the the, the mostly legal support, but also nutrition, uh, mental support. Like expanding this mental program is is really high on our list. So yeah, that's something I think would be is really great for. Uh, for fans if they can support it but yeah most of all like be engaged in in women cycling and also like we see that there that it does help like you've seen with the Giro Rosa like it does help if fans uh, express their um, um, I don't know if annoyance is the good word but dissatisfaction yeah <laughs> we're living in 2020 why is it so difficult to see a women's race live on TV why is there still why is there our race is still so unsafe. Why are um, uh, the working conditions still so low? Like, let's talk about it. Let, let's make it a subject. And I don't mean to say that we always have to talk, talk negative things. Like, we should also praise uh, and, and, and celebrate the achievements of women cycling. Because, like, in general, we see the level growing. We see really interesting races. And um, yeah, I, I think like I'm I'm really positive about where women cycling is right now. And yes, there is a, a long way to go, but let's 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 definitely celebrate what's going really well. I completely agree. When we spoke with Gracie Alvin, she offline said to me that you know she was in the peloton almost ten years. And she was entering, I think, the peloton in 2012 after the London Olympics when that incredible race was on television and that really gave women's cycling a bit of a boost. And then we had, you know, the likes of Lizzie Dignan really coming onto the stage and these big stars that had big followings and, you know, were articulated, intelligent, good-looking women. Um, And she said just in the past few years, the level of talent is just incredible. I mean, years ago, I think when she was first racing the classics, maybe there was that select 10 to 13 riders and you could always kind of predict. But now she was saying she'd be in the box and looking around and there were still 35, 40 riders left. And it was like, what? (laughs) What happened? By this point, usually like it's completely, yeah, just disintegrated the field. But also, I remember the, I did, I think, the first uh, uh, edition of Flanders. I raced, I think it was 2005 or 2004 or something. And I know, like, the, the spectators were booing us when we when we oh. rode up the Molenberg. Like, they were just making jokes about us that we women were racing there. And if you now, if you watch the, the, the viewing figures of how many people watch the... Uh, the races on sports hour or Eurosport, like it's it's really big. Like people are so interested. They go to races to watch women cycling. So also I would say, yeah, also when it when it comes to fans or media, um that the really uh, the appreciation for women cycling has uh has grown a lot. Mm, and I think teams like Trek Segafredo, we talk about them a lot, but I really love what they're doing. And I think the women's team is just incredible. Like, they're just racing so well together. But as a whole, they're they're really just one team, the women's and men's team, and they interact with one another. And I feel like the 
fans of the men's team are now fans of the women's team too. I don't know if I'm on point here, Abby, but... I mean, you're totally right. You're totally right. Like, um, something that Trek Segafredo, the men's team, the men's and women's team does that's different than any of the other men-women combo teams is just the, the team camaraderie between the two teams. So people who, for example, follow, you know... Uh, Balka Mullima on Instagram or on Twitter, he's supporting the women's teams on his social media accounts and like posting stuff with them. And then his fans are then in turn following the women that are on the on the team that he's talking about. Um, and so it, it kind of goes, it's this really cool thing that I, I think that other men's teams that have women's teams do sometimes do, but Trek really emphasizes that. And it's it means that, you know, men's cycling has a bigger fan base and they're pushing fans into the women's side by by encouraging by the riders encouraging their fans to follow the women, which is it's great. I mean, the more fans we can get, the better, because then the more support the sport, the more that we can, you know, do our part from the outside, which is a great time to actually mention Velo Club, which is another way that you can kind of support our quest to grow women's cycling because Velo Club is um, cycling tips subscription based, you know, basically just a a group of people who all really like cycling. And it's the reason that this podcast exists. The the Velo Club members that signed up um, at the beginning of, of at the end of last year and the beginning of this year are the reason that freewheeling has a podcast. The reason that Cycling Tips has been able to spend so much time and energy covering the women's races this year, the daily coverage of the Giro Rosa, all of that stuff is because of Velo Club. So. If you're asking how to support women's racing, definitely support the Cyclist Alliance. And I'll put a link in the bottom of this episode that you can you can go and sign up or at least check it out what they're doing um, online. And you could also think about becoming a Velo Club member, um, which supports what Cycling Tips is doing, which is, you know, trying to bring more coverage of the races. And it gets into the whole chicken and the egg thing, like you know, women's cycling has to grow when there's enough support that people want to watch the race and and stuff like that. And when the fans are calling for the sport to grow, but like, how can they know that women's cycling needs to grow if they don't follow it? And that whole conversation that we could probably get like really into if we wanted to, but we definitely don't have to. But then, but then, Abby, I think it's fair to add a link to join the Cyclist Alliance as a, as a, as a member as well. Don't definitely. I'll add the link in the bottom to join as a member because I mean, I'm a member. I mean, it would be hypocritical for me to push like women cycling so much and not, you know, be a member and and I think it's really important to support what you guys are doing because you've been I mean, everything you do is to grow women's cycling and to make it a better environment for the riders. It's not just about, you know, making the races more exciting or making the races live or it's not about the races it's about the riders themselves and making it possible for the riders to do their jobs and you know be supported by their teams as they should be because I mean I was like totally floored to find out when I was reading about the survey that there's 43 percent of riders still reimbursing their teams for stuff like that's insane to me yeah Um, because you'd think that the bottom the very bottom bottom barrel of teams would still get like travel and at a, least and a bike equipment yeah, yeah. so so that's insane so i mean there's so much there's so much good that's happened with women's cycling in the last couple of years 
but there's still so much to to do still in the future there's so much work to be done so yeah and i i mean i want to also like thank you iris for everything that you do and the cyclist alliance does because damn because you're a busy you're a busy woman we know that you're juggling a lot of different things at the moment but um i i really love the adopt a rider thing i think i might even adopt a rider myself (laughs) (laughs) yeah why not sponsor a rider yeah no, I think that, that I think that's an, that it's definitely uh, yeah maybe to have that kind of connect, like direct connection with someone in the peloton is uh, and it's not like I don't think it's like uh, yeah you know I I have adopted a little a little girl in Tanzania <laughs> but this is yeah. different you know because I don't think these riders are like 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 uh, that you have to feel sad for them or something like they're just really chasing their dream and yeah. and they and they and they give all to uh, you know to get to that top level with the hopes that at that point it will be a, a viable uh, career um, and I also want to mention that I'm definitely not doing this by myself like with the cyclist alliance we have a really great team of uh, people who have a lot of different expertise and uh, and um, and and all helping the riders and trying to expand our services and our organization so that's re- that's also really great and um, I think also for me personally like a very uh, good learning experience to be part of like Four years ago, uh, Carmen Small, Gracie, Elvin, and I, we, we just thought like, yeah, this this is necessary. Let's start it. And we had, luckily, we had no clue what, what we've started. And uh, and now, uh, four years later, like we have a pretty pretty solid group of people who uh, who run this organization, and um, and we've got a lot of members, and we've got a lot of support, and uh, I think we've already achieved quite a bit where yeah I'm, I'm super proud of and you know I'm mostly proud actually that we have so many riders involved we have the rider council with very um, um, very uh, involved riders and we've just uh, added a few more riders uh, for for example Tanil uh, Campbell uh, will join um, <clears throat> Haley Smith, mountain bike rider. So we're we're really getting trying to uh, represent the peloton as good as it is. Like adding that um, riders from different disciplines and different continents, and um, yeah, and and most of all, the fact that riders feel that they have the support. I think that's that's the uh, the biggest win. They just don't say yes to everything. They know well. There's always a cyclist alliance we can go to and will support us no matter what. And I think that's like that's the start, you know, to mm. change really the culture of the of the sport. I think we get asked quite often what what advice would you give a young rider just coming into the sport and on that continental continental level or just trying to come up through the ranks. I, I think my advice would be actually sign up with the Alliance first. Yeah. And just have that behind you because you, you never know what's going to happen and you, no, you have somewhere to turn, actually. True. But also, it's not just that, but it's also on like, we have a big network of, of people. We know a lot of riders uh, connecting with the mentorship program, but also asking like, 
like simple questions about teams or what's happening during races or um, like just being able to speak about everything. I think that it doesn't always have to be this heavy subjects or big problems like it can also be fun things or or just things you're curious about or connecting them with yeah with by the by the mentorship program as it is now just connecting a young rider with an experienced rider is already it it, it's fun for for both of them and it's and it's super uh, you learn so much of it and it's better than messaging pro riders like out of the blue and being like how can i get to Europe to race and they're like uh (laughs) although when I was like 21 years old and I messaged that to Gracie Elvin she responded so pretty awesome Uh, I think uh, that as well to someone to many riders actually yeah I think it's pretty common um anyway Aris thank you so much for coming on I think we could probably keep going on and on about this for a really long time so I think we should probably have you back on at some point in the future if you'll want to, but yeah, I, I'm really grateful for you coming to chat with us because I think like us saying things and, and trying to get the word out is one thing, but if we can talk to someone like you, who's like really in the thick of it, it it really helps to get the point across. So thank you so much. And yeah, that's, that's a, that's our show. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome, and keep up the the fun podcast. Thanks. <laughs> we'll do our best. <laughs> we'll be back in two weeks, and keep an eye on our Twitters because we'll we'll mention if we're doing a uh, a show with the best of the best and the worst of the worst. I thought Abby was still calculating again. Yeah, the yeah. Boy sprint of the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get her head around it. Okay, yeah, but I'm almost positive that they did a bon- They did an extra sprint that wasn't in the road book. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, me too. I was also confused by that. Yeah, like I was counting the sprint, and they were like, the the very last one with five k to go. I was like, what is what is this sprint? This isn't in the road book. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs>